Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara 91.9. Today I'll be reading The Corner and Native Sun by T.D. Ham. The Corner first appeared in Vortex Science Fiction, Volume 1, Number 2, 1953. In today's hour, we are focusing on 1953. In the background, you have been hearing the intro to the 1953 film, It Came From Outer Space, based on Ray Bradbury's original story, The Meteor. This was the first 3D film produced. The film's uncredited music score was composed by Irving Gertz, Henry Mancini, and Herman Stein. The Corner by T.D. Ham. I said no, and I mean no, George Dixon said loudly. A boy your age ought to be going to bed with a catcher's mitt beside him instead of a doll. Tommy Dixon's lower lip protruded unhappily. But I got to, he insisted. I just got to. His father snapped his paper open irritably. Helen Dixon looked from one to the other with a worried frown on her face. George, don't you think... maybe... Her voice trailed off uncertainly. No, I don't, he said loudly. I'm going to put a stop to this ridiculous business once and for all. I've locked that silly doll in the closet, and it's going to stay there. Now, get to bed, and not another word about it. Tommy went sallow white under his healthy tan. He stood a moment, looking helplessly at his mother, and then turned with dragging feet towards the stairs. He paused at the stairfoot, and turned reluctantly. Please, father, he gulped. Marco protects me. George Dixon threw his paper to the floor and stood up threateningly. Tommy vanished up the stairs. His father sat back, breathing heavily. That boils spoiled rotten, Helen. Protection. I've never heard such morbid, unhealthy nonsense. But a lot of children take toys to bed with them, Helen offered, placatively. Not a boy nine years old, and not my son. And I don't want to hear any more about it. He retired decisively behind his paper. Helen sighed unhappily and picked up her knitting. When his door opened quietly an hour later, a ray of moonlight disclosed Tommy lying quietly in his bed, eyes fast shut. Sound asleep, his father whispered triumphantly. 
You're too soft with the boy, Helen. All he needed was a little firmness. The door closed. The footsteps whispered away. Tommy pulled himself up to a sitting position against the pillows. He watched the pool of moonlight move slowly over the floor. Branches cast swaying shadows over the wall. An owl hooted. He accepted them quietly. It was not the night and its noises that he feared. Grimly, with a maturity of patience older than his years, he settled down to outweigh the night. After his teacher had complained two days in succession that Tommy was falling asleep in the classroom, his father escorted him grimly to the doctor. Bill Carey, M.D., having known George Dixon for 25 years, cut him off unceremoniously in the middle of a sentence with a testy, Yes, George. Now. Let me talk to Tommy for a minute. Having settled Tommy comfortably in the big chair, he sat back and regarded him with twinkling eyes. Well, young man, so you've had, been having bad dreams? Tommy regarded him silently. Well, there's nothing to be alarmed about, he went on comfortably. Everybody does, more or less. It's always the same dream, or is it different? Tommy eyed him wearily. The same one, he said reluctantly. Dr. Carey lifted his eyebrows interrogatively. Oh, they're generally the most interesting kind. What are you in the dream? Is it scary? Tommy's eyes brightened and the color came up in his face. No, sir, he said eagerly. It's not scary exactly. Sort of interesting and exciting. It's like we're walking along a deep road with high walls on each side, and there are black caves in the walls, and up ahead there's a bend. His voice faltered a little, and some of the color left his face. Well, that doesn't sound scary, the other said encouragingly. Why are you afraid to go to sleep? Tommy sat erect, and the words came out with a rush. Because in the caves and around the bend, there's... something. But I don't know what it is, because they're all afraid of Marco. He stopped abruptly, lips pressed together. Who's Marco? Tommy's eyes lightened with excitement. He's like a giant, and... They're afraid of him. As long as I've got my hand on him, I'm safe. And after we get around the bend, everything will be all right. The doctor looked at him silently. Tommy dropped his eyes and said miserably, 
Dad says he's just a doll, and, and that I'm a sissy. His chin quivered. The doctor rose and patted him on the shoulder reassuringly. Everything will be all right. Now you sit out in front for a moment while I talk to your dad. It was considerably more than a minute before his father bounced out, red in the face and fizzing with anger. Damn quack, he muttered at intervals on the way home. Damn quack, he said loudly in reply to his wife's anxious glance. Said it to me, me, that I was to blame? Said the boy needed more feeling of protection. Well, dear, Helen said hesitantly, do you think perhaps? No, I don't think perhaps, he mimicked savagely. Bunch of poppycock. I've got a better idea, and it won't cost me 20 bucks, either. Time for bed, Tommy, said his mother softly. Tommy looked at her appealingly. George, she ventured tentatively. He squalled irritably over his paper. Okay, okay, here's the key. Give him his confounded doll. Anything to get a little peace and quiet around here. Tommy looked at him doubtfully, incredulous relief on his face. He looked at his mother. She took, too, looked startled and uncertain. But there was the key. Safely in bed, he clutched Marco, free feverishly, and looked at his mother. He... he really didn't mean it, did he, Mom? Yes, dear. He, he doesn't really mean to be unkind, you know. He's thinking of your own good, even when he's stern with you. Now, good night, and pleasant dreams. Tommy settled down and closed his eyes blissfully. In a few moments, he was on the winding, cliff-bordered path. Marco's shadow, gigantic against the towering walls. Already they were closer to the bend than they had ever been before. He had felt the familiar thrill, half terror, half delight. But with Marco beside him, it was all right. George Dixon came into the bedroom chuckling triumphantly. Helen jerked upright as she saw what he carried in his arm. Marco! She gasped, dismayed. Oh, George! And he was sleeping so soundly! He still is, he grinned. I just slipped his old bunny slipper under his hand, and he never knew the difference. Wait till he wakes up in the morning. I bet we'll never hear another word out of him. He jumped out of bed the next morning, chuckling with anticipation. Boy, I can hardly wait to see his face. He padded across the hall and flung the door open. 
Tommy! Hey, Tom! His voice broke off a horrible, choking cry. Tommy had been alone at the bend. Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara 91.9. That was The Corner by T.D. Ham. It was originally published in Vortex Science Fiction in 1953. T.D. Ham's legal name was Thelma Ham Evans. She was born in 1905 and published 12 short stories between 1952 and 1961. There's very little information about her. Typically, her biography is that she was the wife of science fiction author E. Everett Evans, and sometimes there's not even an entry about her. The only way that you can find her is through her husband. Structures One by Boulez, a French composer. Structures One was premiered in Germany May of 1953. Here's a quote of Boulez explaining the purpose of this work. I wanted to eradicate my vocabulary, absolutely every trace of the conventional, whether it concerned figures and phrases or development and form. I then wanted gradually, element after element, to win back the various stages of the compositional process in such a manner that a perfectly new synthesis might arise, a synthesis that would not be corrupted from the very outset by foreign bodies, stylistic reminiscences in particular. The music for the show is experimental music from 1953, the same time period as the stories. Now we'll be listening to an excerpt from Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henry's Orphe 53, which was composed in 1953. 
Alle, die ich liebe, durch einen einzigen Blick verliere ich sie. Das Echo. Selbst, nur du allein. Immer noch der alte Refrain. Ein Mensch nur sind diese Götter. Sein Name ist Orpheus. Wer bist du denn? Jedermann ist Orpheus. Schlimmeres noch. Horch! Oh. 
deine Ungeheuer. Sisyphus ist Orpheus. Tantalus ist Orpheus. Prometheus ist Orpheus. Und der Adler, auch er, ist Orpheus. In Orpheus' Händen nistet der Otternbrot. Es sind die tausend Stimmen des Orpheus. Der Hades war nur eine Ammenmeer. In dir selber steigt der Hades empor. Der Hades ist Orpheus.
This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. That was the first half of Orphe 53, composed by Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri in 1953. It is considered musique concrète, a term coined by Pierre Schaeffer in 1949. Musique concrète is music that extracts sounds from recordings, manipulating them, as well as synthesizers and digital signal processing. This was one of the early compositions created at the first purposefully built electronic music studio. Next, I will be reading Native Sun by T.D. Ham, which was published in Imagination, July of 1953. Native Sun by T.D. Ham. Tommy Benton, on his first visit to Earth, found the long-anticipated wonders of the 21st century New York thrilling the first week, boring and unhappy the second week, and at the end of the third, he was definitely ready to go home. The never-ending racket of traffic was torture to his abnormally acute ears. Increased atmospheric pressure did funny things to his chest and stomach. And quick, sure-footed on Mars, he struggled constantly against the heavy gravity that made all his movements clumsy and uncoordinated. The endless canyons of towering buildings, with their connected skywalks, oppressed and smothered him. Remembering the endless vistas of Ribara fields beside a canal that was like an inland sea, Homeness flooded over him. He hated the people who stared at him with either open or hidden amusement. His Aunt B, for instance, who looked him up and down with frank disapproval and said loudly, For heaven's sake, Helen, take him to a good tailor and get those bones covered up. Was it his fault he was six inches taller than Terran boys his age and had long, thin arms and legs, or that his chest was abnormally developed to compensate for an oxygen-thin atmosphere? I'd like to see her, he thought fiercely, out on the flatlands. She'd be gasping, gasping like a canal fish out of water. Even his parents, happily riding the social merry-go-round of Terra after eleven years in the Martian flatlands, didn't seem to understand how he felt. "'Don't you like Earth, Tommy?' queried his mother anxiously. "'Oh, it's all right, I guess.' "'A nice place to visit,' said his father sardonically. But I wouldn't live here if they gave me the place, said his mother, and they both burst out laughing for no reason that Tommy could see. Of course, they did that lots of times at home, and Tommy laughed with them just for the warm, secure feeling of belonging. This time, he didn't feel like laughing. We're going home, he repeated stubbornly. His father pulled Tommy 
over in the crook of his arm and said gently, Well, not right away, son. As a matter of fact, how would you like to stay here and go to school? Tommy pulled away and looked at him incredulously. I've been to school. Well, yes, admitted his father. But only to the colony schools. You don't want to grow up and be an ignorant Martian sandfoot all your life, do you? Yes, I do. I want to be a Martian sandfoot. And I want to go home where people don't look at me and say, So, this is your little Martian. Benton Sr. put his arm around Tommy's stiff, resistant shoulders. Look here, young... Old man, he said persuasively. I thought you wanted to be a space engineer. You can't do that without an education, you know. And your Aunt B will take good care of you. Tommy faced him stubbornly. I don't want to be any old spaceman. I want to be a sandfoot like old Pete, and I want to go home. Helen bit back a smile as the two earnest, stubborn faces so ridiculously alike and hastened to avert the gathering storm. Now look, fellas, Tommy's career doesn't have to be decided in the next five minutes. After all, he's only ten. He can make up his mind later. On, if he wants to be an engineer or a rabba-farmer. Right now, he's going to stay here and go to school, and I'm staying with him. Resolutely avoiding both crestfallen faces, Helen, having shepherded Tommy to bed, returned to the living room, acutely conscious of Big Tom's bleak, hurting gaze at her. Helen, you're going to make a sissy out of the boy, he said at last. There isn't a reason why he can't stay here at home with B. Helen turned to face him. Earth isn't home to Tommy, and your sister B told him he ought to be out playing football with the boys instead of hanging around the house. But she knows the doctor, and said he'd have to take it easy for a year till he was accustomed to the change in gravity and air pressure, he answered incredulously. Exactly. She also asked me, Helen went on grimly, if I thought he'd be less of a freak as he got older. Tom Benton swore. B always did have less sense than the average hen, he gritted. My son a freak. Hell's bells. Tommy, arriving at the hall in time to hear the tail end of the sentence, crept back to bed feeling numb and dazed, so even his father thought he was a freak. The last days before parting was one of strain for all of them. If Tommy was unnaturally subdued, no one noticed. If his parents were not feeling any great impulse towards gaiety either. They all went dutifully sightseeing before 
They saw the zoo and went shopping on the skywalks and on the last day wound up at the great showrooms of Androids, Inc. Tommy had hated them on sight. They were at once too human and too inhuman for comfort. The hotel was full of them, and most private homes had at least one. Now they saw great incumbent vats, and the process, and finally the showroom, where one of the finished products was on display as a maid, sweeping and dusting. There's one that's a dead ringer for you, Helen. If you were a little better looking, that is. Tommy's dad pretended to compare them judiciously. Helen laughed, but Tommy looked at him with resentfulness, comparing his mother to an android. They said, for a little extra, you can get an exact resemblance. Maybe I'd better have one fixed up like you and take it back with me, Big Tom added teasingly. Then, as Helen's face clouded over, Oh, hun, you know I was only kidding. Let's get out of here. This place gives me the collie wobbles. Besides, I've got to pick up my watch. But his mother's face was still unhappy, and Tommy glowered suddenly at his father's back all the way to the watch shop. It was a small shop with an inconspicuous sign down in one corner of the window that said only, Crumbie and Watches and was probably the most famous shop of its kind in the world. Every spaceman landed on Terra, left his watch to be checked by the dusty little old man, who was the genius of the place. Tommy ranged wide-eyed the clock, and the chronometer crammed interior. He stopped fascinated before the last case in which it had a watch, but what a watch. Besides the regular Terran dial, it had a second smaller dial that registered the corresponding time on Mars. Tommy's whole heart went out to it in an ecstasy of longing. He thought wistfully that if you could only know what time it was there, you could imagine what everyone was doing, and it wouldn't seem so far away. Halting, he tried to explain. Look, Mom, he said breathlessly. It's almost five o'clock at home. Dewey will be coming up to the barn to be fed. Gosh, do you suppose old Pete will remember about her? His mother smiled at him reassuringly. Of course he will, silly. Don't forget, he was the one who caught and tamed her for you. Tommy gulped as he thought of Dewey. Scarcely as tall as himself, the big, rounded, mouse-like ears, and the flat, cloven pads that could carry her so swiftly over the sandy Martian flatlands. One of the last dwindling herds of native Martian 
Dewey's, burden carriers of a vanishing race. She had been Tommy's particular pride and joy for the last three years. Behind him, Tommy heard his mother murmur under her breath, Tom, the watch, could we? And his dad regretfully, It's a pretty expensive toy for a youngster, Helen, and even a Rabara razor bank account has its limits. Of course, dear, it was silly of me. Helen smiled a little ruefully. And if Mr. Crumbian has your watch ready, we must go. Bee and some of her friends are coming over, and it's only a few hours till you leave. Big Tom squeezed her elbow gently, understandingly, as she blinked back quick tears. Trailing after them, Tommy saw a little byplay, and his heart ached. The guilt complex building up in him grew and deepened. He knew he had only to say, Look, I don't mind staying. Aunt B and I will get along swell. And everything would be alright again. Then the terror of this new complex world, as it would be without a familiar face, swept over him and kept him silent. His overwrought feelings expressed themselves in a nervously rebelling stomach, accumulating in a disgraceful moment over the nearest gutter. The rest of the afternoon he spent in bed recuperating. In the living room, Aunt Bee spoke her voice. Her mind in her usual high-pitched voice. It's disgraceful, Helen. A boy his age. None of the Bentons ever had nerves. His mother's reply was inaudible. But on the heels of his father's deeper tones, Aunt B's voice rose in rasping indignation. Well, I never. And f from my own brother, too. Well, from now on, don't come to me for help with your spoiled brat. Goodbye. The door slammed indignantly. His mother chuckled, and there was a spontaneous burst of laughter. Tommy relaxed and lay back happily. Anyway, that was the last of Aunt B. The next hour or two passed in a flurry of ringing phones, people coming and going, and last-minute words and reminders. Then suddenly it was time to leave. Dad burst in for a last quick hug and promised to send him pictures of Dewey and her fowl due next month. Mother dropped a hasty kiss on his hair and promised to hurry back from the spaceport. Then Tommy was alone, with a large painful lump where his heart ought to be. The only activity was the almost noiseless buzzing as the hotel android ran the cleaner over the living room. Presently, even that ceased, and Tommy lay relaxed and inert, sleepily 
watching the curtains blow in and out at the open window. Thirty stories above the streets, the noise were pleasantly muffled and remote, and his senses drifted aimlessly to and fro on the tides of half-sleep. Drowsily, his minds wandered from the hotel's android servants to the strictly utilitarian mechanoid monstrosity at home. Knowing affectionately as Old John to the android showroom where they had seen the one Dad said looked like his mother. He jolted suddenly, sickeningly awake. Suppose his mother whispered treacherously. Suppose that Dad had ordered one to take his mother's place, not on Mars, but here, while she returned to Mars with him. Suppose that instead of Mom, he discovered one of those things, or even worse. Suppose he went on from day to day, not even knowing. It was a bad five minutes. He was wet with perspiration while he lay back on his pillow. A shaking smile tugged at the corner of his mouth. He had a secret defense against the terror. He giggled a little at the thought of what Aunt B would say if she knew. And what had brought him back from the edge of hysteria was the triumphant knowledge that with the abnormally acute hearing bred in the thin atmosphere of Mars, no robot created could hide from him the infinitesimal ticking of the electronic relays that gave it life. Secure at last, his overstrung nerves relaxed, and he slid gratefully over the edge of sleep. He woke abruptly, groping after some vaguely remembered sound. A soft clicking of heels down the hall. Of course, his mother's back from the spaceport. Now she would be stopping at his door to see if he were asleep. He lay silently through his eyelashes. He could see her outlining in the soft light from the hall. She was coming in to see if he was tucked in. In a moment, he would jump and startle her with a hug as she leaned over him. In a moment. Screaming desperately, he was out of bed, backing heedlessly across the room. He was still screaming as the low sill of an open window caught him from behind the knees and toppled him thirty stories to the street. Alone in the silent room, Helen Benton stood dazed, staring blindly at the empty window. Tommy's parting gift from his father slid from her hand and lay on the carpet, still ticking. It was 9.23 on Mars. This is Books of Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. That was Native Son by T.D. Ham. It was originally published in Imagination, July of 1953. In the background, you have heard Contrapunta by Stockhausen. 
and we are currently listening to Etude en by Jean Barak. Contrapunta was performed at the Abbe de Royalmont in France on the 10th of September 2011 by the Ensemble Liné, conducted by Jean-Philippe Wurtz. Uh, at least that was the performance that we were just listening to. It was originally composed in 1953. Here's how Stockhausen describes Contrapunte. Counterpoints, a series of the most concealed and also the most conspicuous transformations and renewals, with no predictable end. The same thing is never heard twice, yet there is a distinct feeling of never falling out of an unmistakable construction of the utmost homogeneity, an underlying force that holds things together, related proportions, a structure. Not the same gestalten in a changing light, but rather this, a various gestalten in the same light that permeates everything. Stockhausen did compose work in Schaefer's studio during this time, but this was not one of those pieces. Etude en by Jean Barak was the only electronic music piece he composed, which he also made in Schaefer's studio. Native Sun exemplifies our fears of technology becoming too human. The idea of human, but not quite human, has been drawn on in science fiction since the birth of the genre, with Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Masashiro Mori, in 1970, explored the idea of not quite human with his theory of the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is the idea that the more human-like a robot is, the more comfortable it is to humans until it is too similar, and then its familiarity drops, becoming eerie and causing revulsion in observers. There are many different theories on why not-quite-human causes revulsion. The evolutionary explanations are pathogen avoidance and mate selection. The idea of pathogen avoidance is, according to Dr. Leslie Zebrowitz, psychology professor at Brandeis, um, is the more human an organism looks, the stronger the aversion to its defects, because defects indicate disease. More human-like organisms are more closely related to human beings genetically, and the probability of contracting disease-causing bacteria, viruses, and other parasites increase with genetic similarity. Mate selection has similar roots. You want to avoid selecting mates with low fertility, poor hormonal health, or ineffective immune systems. Another argument is that conflicting perceptual cues cause the uncanny valley. This means that when something falls into two categories, like human appearance and erratic movement, perceptual tension occurs because your brain doesn't know what category to put it in. This tension causes discomfort or eeriness. Last, mortality salience 
is another potential cause for the uncanny valley. Was that means that the root cause of an innate fear of death, reduction, replacement, and annihilation. Dr. Zebrowitz explains that a mechanism with a human facade and also a mechanical interior plays on our subconscious fear that we are all just soulless machines. Also, androids in various states of mutilation, decapitation, or disassembly are reminiscent of battlefield after a conflict, and as such, serve as a reminder of our mortality. Since, since most androids are copies of actual people, they are doppelgangers and may elicit a fear of being replaced on the job, in a relationship, and so on. The jerkiness of an android's movement could be unsettling because it elicits fear of losing bodily control. The Uncanny Valley is important in current research in artificial intelligence and social robotics. A recent paper by J.P. Stein in Cognition had participants watch a conversation in virtual reality between two avatars that show emotion and empathy. The participants were told either it was scripted or self-directed dialogue, and either human-controlled versus computer-controlled agents. The results were that even though they viewed the same interaction, participants found a significantly stronger eeriness when they were told that the agents were autonomous, computer-controlled agents. They argue that this is due to a threat to human distinctiveness, or what Zebrowitz called mortality salience. Hörst du mich, die ich dir stellte? Erinnerst du dich? Nicht Eurydike, Orphas, nicht sie, die 
sie nicht mehr ist. In dich selber steige hinab und finde mich. Bleib Orpheus und rühr dich nicht. Eine Geste, dich und mich, verlierst du im selben Augenblick. Und zu den Toten kehren wir zurück. Nimm endlich Orpheus von deinem Reich Besitz. Nicht Cupido spricht noch zu dir. Geboren, der Sonne Sohn. In dein hohes Lied stimmt er mit ein. In dir allein begründe ich künftig unsere Heimstadt. Vorbei die Stunde der Kreatur. Beschreit nie wieder diesen alten Pfad, nicht dorten bergt sich dein Heil. Dein Wille befiehlt meiner Herrschaft, deinem Atem verdanke ich mein Leben. Deine Stimme lässt im All mich schweben. mir der Töne Zauberkraft, die ungeheuer selbst gefügig macht. Wenn eure Dike du entsagst,
off this hour with an excerpt from Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri's Orphi 53, which was composed in 1953. You've been listening to Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors. On KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. Thank <laughs> you.